So we're here in my office in Seinfeld and I am delighted to be joined by a man that I have known, known of for a little while, uh, but I've only just had the pleasure of, of being introduced to, uh, and that is Brian Williams. And Brian, I, you know, I, I'm going to get you to introduce yourself rather than me mm -hmm. do that job. Because uh, I think the best person to talk about you would be you, mm -hmm. rather than me. And I suppose for our first question, I'd love you to take the first few minutes of this podcast, which is called Honest Conversations About Things That Matter to You. And maybe, you know, if you can imagine a, if you can imagine you know, an award ceremony where you're going to have to collect an award. Or, you know, like, this is your life or yes. something. And they do the, you know, they do that three-minute rule of, of film, which kind of, you know, shoots you through maybe important moments or milestones in your life from as early as you care to go to as close to now as you care to go. Feel free to include what you want and feel free to exclude what you want. Uh, so would you take a few minutes and just... You know, do that. Imagine that video, and just tell us what what would be on there if this was this was your life. So I'm thinking about that. It's quite a long chronology, and sadly, um, just going back. You're taking me right back to my childhood. There, happiness, running. I saw myself running, enthusiastic. Uh, maybe. Um, a bit challenging at times as a child, you know, very full on. Um, wonderful parents, absolutely loving parents. Um, not a massive amount of money in the house, but uh, everything that there was was steered towards our best interests. Um, father, who is a great role model. Um, mother who was very full on and uh, um, could, you know, be very responsive and snappy if you, if you, if you did too much wrong. But uh, it was always uh, coming from a place of love and kindness. You were yeah. always aware of that. Um, I remember going to grammar school. I went um, to school in Belfast. Remember a very violent teacher in those days. Teachers could get quite physical. This um, brute used to keep tiny me behind. You know, I was about eleven, and um, he used to uh, put his hand under my chin, cock it up, and then using all his force, he would hit me across the face. And I was such an antithesis to what I'd been used to in all this sheltered life of beauty. Mm -hmm. um, as he hit me, I would always look him straight in the eye. And then he said, totally puzzled, what is it about you? Why are you so sure of yourself? I said, because my mother loves me. And it is a gift, a beautiful gift that has stayed with me right through my life. That's amazing. absolutely That's amazing awareness. For a child, yeah. for a child to help, just came out of my mouth, mm -hmm. and it's been like a grounding, uh, solid, underpinning thing to have been supported, to be loved—a gorgeous thing to have in my life. 
something that I can share with others. Mm -hmm. Struggled a bit at the grammar school, because, probably because of what I just told you. I was living a life in fear, you know, and, uh, yeah, you know, sore stomachs. I now know it was my fear belt. But, mm -hmm. um, I seemed to um, find myself as I came closer to the end of the school, and when I went to university, I just uh, settled into who I really was, and that happened to be that I was interested Unwittingly, I was interested in landscape, and I know, landscape, skyscape, seascape, uh, who I was, uh, my place uh, in, you know, the chronology of life. And I think I'd started when I was about 14 or 15 reading books that were steering me in that direction. And um, I went to hear a great professor, absolute legend, called Eston Evans went when I was 17 to hear this lecture and I came out of the lecture theatre just floating. It was just right for me at that mm -hmm. time in my life. And I ended up doing archaeology and it introduced me to a whole different view of life, a very long chronology, which I have extended now later in my life to you know, really long chronology. Seeing things not just in the everyday or the, the you know the uh, reacting to situations, mm -hmm. but to knowing that people have walked this island of Ireland, you know, for ten thousand years, mm -hmm. each one has had its issues to deal with, challenges. You know, uh, my own family, just a classic of that. I've been researching that lately, and uh, it ended up that I went into a career in field archaeology. I had 20 years as a young man uh, surveying, digging, getting to really know the pulse of the landscape. You know, paid. I always was saying, I'm getting paid to do this. To go and maybe spend a week walking the slopes of a mountain and getting to feel what has been going on here for the last thousands of years and tuning my whole senses into little ripples in the ground. And I developed techniques of how to, um, you know, if I couldn't answer a question by logic, looking at the ground and seeing what was happening. Say you can see the shape of where a house has been. Well, that's <coughs> logical. But you don't know what age the house is. And then, I, so I developed this sort of, um, it's not quite keyhole, but I mean, I call it the one meter trench strategy, one meter wide trench across whatever it was that I couldn't understand, and I thought it had answers for me. And I'd get these wonderful answers. Uh, you know, this belonged to people in the seventh century who were quite well off, who you could see their modes of life just in these tiny digs. That became, was feeding into a whole movement called landscape archaeology. And my career went through the, these phases. Uh, one of my phases was um, my boss called me, and I, I love sailing, Kevin. Mm -hmm. it's, I still sail. I have a lovely boat not 15 minutes from here, you know, on Strangford Lock. And I cruise a lot with friends. And um, my boss called me in and said, uh, we've been asked, I, I was working for the government, we've been asked to take on a new subject, maritime archaeology, and um, I wonder would you like to take it on? And she said, but don't go overboard. <laughs> <laughs> At that time, everybody worldwide thought that 
uh, maritime archaeology equals shipwrecks. But I had already had 20 years of walking the land, of excavating, of really getting in touch with human, human interaction with the land. And what I transposed onto my new responsibility was uh, the totality of the human interaction with the sea. And of course, it's um, uh, sustenance, fish, shellfish, mm -hmm. seaweeds, whatever. It's communication on your boats. It's defense. Um, we're, we're lucky enough in this part of the world, we have a high rise and fall of the tide. You know, in the intertidal zone, we can use it industrially. The sea can drive our, our sea mills like we have the oldest known sea-driven corn mill in the world just at Nendrum, you know, right. 20 yeah. minutes from That's here. Right. We found that mm -hmm. by my little one meter trench method. Right, okay. <laughs> you know, it's absolute epic in the world now. We um, brought out this glorious book, uh, Strangford Lock, um, an archaeological cultural landscape uh, where people exploited the whole seabed as far as they could. Um, um, you know, as the, as the tide was going out, they were cultivating seaweeds on it for different purposes, industrial purposes. They were reclaiming things, burning seaweed to make, uh, you know, diff extract different minerals as part of the Industrial Revolution and so on. I'm not boring with it all. Mm -hmm. But um, it was part of this whole process that, I'd, you know, we'd had the troubles here. I was working in this sort of rarefied atmosphere through the troubles. People were having a nightmare. I was having an absolute wonderful unfoldment of my own, own knowledge, you know, of the past and who I was. Yeah. And uh, who everybody else was, I suppose, along with it. And um, I was used to speaking to an archaeological audience in Ireland can be, say, 20 to 40 people. Mm -hmm. If it's a big do, it might be 50. <laughs> and um, as I developed this concept of the maritime cultural landscape, and I should say in tandem with others, I might have been the leader, but the people around me, they were the real stars, you know, mm -hmm. I was just sort of having the vision and make, you know, getting the right people all around me. And um, so I was invited to give a lecture in Corpus Christi, Texas, which seemed an awful long way to go to speak about Strangford Lock. And um, I went there and it was quite intimidating because suddenly, instead of an audience of 20 or 30 or whatever, there's a thousand people all sitting expectantly. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure. And I knew that they had all been in maritime archaeology for you know years and years. Uh, I was new to it, and I wasn't. I was just developing my own methods in isolation, and, uh, but applying it from a base of a knowledge that I'd I'd had on the land. And uh, I wasn't even sure if they knew where Ireland was, but but. Uh, <laughs> The reaction to the talk was fantastic, and um, eventually uh, uh, they asked me to come on to an adv the advisory committee for archaeology in the United States, and that really internationalised me because I've always felt so parochial in Northern Ireland and contained, and it's a massive world out there. Mm -hmm. And somehow throughout the troubles, you know, nobody came here. There wasn't that connection to everybody, and I love connecting to people. Yeah. And so it was a wonderful period of my life of traveling and um, I was on the international lecture circuit, you know, and got to places absolutely uh, 
be beyond my bank balance, let's say, mm -hmm. and to go to and having this great f set of friendships around the world. And um, I could go on, and you're not here to talk about an archaeological career, but I ended up principal archaeologist and. Um, um, I was director of the Centre for Maritime Archaeology in the University of Ulster, no, a professor there, and then word got out and I was invited. Well, I had been teaching in uh, University College London uh, since about, just after I took up the Maritime. It was Maritime that brought me to their attention mm -hmm. as well, and that was a magnificent thing to work it's, it's all postgraduate students. It's very international. There are some UK people there, but it's, it's you name it. People come from all over the world to the Institute of Archaeology. And I find that oh, so challenging. It'll maybe be like what you're going to do to me today. People would ask me these really, really big questions. And I just, I could feel my little brain going, you know, and somehow dredging an answer, right, you know, and being a bit on a high, maybe for a fortnight afterwards, you know. The typical class would be two hours of talking, of me giving a talk, you know, we'd always have a little break in the middle because I think two hours is a lot. Mm -hmm. And then there'd be about an hour of questions where we just, you know, we just talk like talking. Mm -hmm. and people asking me questions. I just found it so wonderful, total privilege in my life um, to be there uh, with these wonderful students, like of the highest caliber, utterly self-motivated. And um, so I did about 20 years, and I, I've, I've stepped down from it because they, they wanted me to continue, but that part of my life is over. Okay, so I retired in 2011 mm -hmm. and um, carried on in a beautiful little role um, for four years uh, where I joined um, a strategy group within government with people who really think outside the box. And mine was to bring, you know, a 40-year plus, well, 40 years career uh, to give it value somehow to make it. I always struggled with this, um, you know, this world of privilege that I lived in. Of course, I was unfolding myself and so on and helping society to become aware of who it was. But what are the real tangible benefits? What can my career really leave? you know, a, a, as a legacy to society. And so my idea that I worked towards, and it just sort of emerged, was uh, to put um, an economic and social value onto the world of uh, the built heritage. Uh, you know, all our monuments that people go and mm -hmm. see, um, the list of buildings, all our mm -hmm. lovely heritage that some of us cherish more than others. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got economic consultants involved and um, laid out a whole business plan for it. And we come and, and appointed a government statistician from another department completely who had never met. Uh, I brought in key people, you know, thinkers, uh, and we worked with the consultants and constantly tried to pare away their numbers to bring it down to the smallest number that we could really justify every pound mm -hmm. in the figure. So the figure for what, what the built heritage brings to Northern Ireland every year is 532 million pounds. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money in mm -hmm. a tiny community, mm -hmm. 1.7 million people, 532 million pounds. Okay. 
It also sustains 10,000 full-time equivalent jobs. Mm -hmm. which a lot of jobs. Is a lot of jobs. Mm -hmm. I also found out there's a model around the world. There's two real factors uh, in what uh, the built heritage creates economically. One is uh, tourism. And generally speaking, and the other, the other is uh, construction. So you're maintaining the fabric and you're bringing people into your area. Think of, uh, you know, the shock of Notre Dame going down. Mm. It's then, it's only then, the shock. These things become iconic parts of us, often without realizing it. Mm -hmm. And so the Parisian people, you know, or the French people, something has gone from them. Mm -hmm. and, but think of the economic potential that Notre Dame has had, you know, mm -hmm. bringing tourists in. It's a focus to bring a tourist in. And... Um, the model generally internationally is that 70% of the bite of the cake goes to tourism and 30% goes to construction. But our model in Northern Ireland was exactly the opposite. 70% was going to construction and 30% to tourism. And people were shaking their heads when these figures came out. Oh dear. And I said, wow, what an opportunity to reverse that, mm -hmm. to grow it. And so, uh, now I'm in glorious retirement and, uh, you know, living in the sunlight, it's a wonderful time to be alive as you, when you're older. Uh, you know, if you have your health and, and some economic security, at least your needs are met, which mm -hmm. mine are met, it's a fabulous time to be alive because you have this wonderful perspective. And now my colleagues are all building on that labour and uh, working with uh, tourist people and all sorts of groups to try and uh, really, um, instead of being a weakness, it was an absolute strength to be building from a low point. You can see why we were building from a low point. Absolutely. Because nobody came here. Yeah. Our behaviour was repellent, yeah. so we didn't come. Yeah. And now we're attempting to be attractive, some more than others. Mm -hmm. And um, so, so that, that is really my archaeological career. I had the pleasure of doing that. I really loved being in the strategy group. My human design, if you know about human design, I'm a projector. Okay. And a projector is a person who sees. Uh, a projector is not here to work. A projector is here to see. Mm -hmm. And when asked to give advice, mm -hmm. not to give advice, when wait asked. until you're asked. <laughs> yeah. And um, so I had that beautiful end of my career as a projector being able to see the big picture. I had been asked to advise <laughs> as a gift. And you know, the, I had several ministers along the route, a couple of ministers, and they really supported me. Uh, even there was cross-party support for what I did. Uh, there was unanimous support to endorse the report by all the MLA's instalment. Who okay. else has done that? Which is a rare thing. <laughs> yeah. a rare thing. Yeah. So, um, for me, you know, you could live in that past and try to stay in it. I've chosen to step forward in life, to go into complete new territory for me. And that's really a focus of what we're going to talk about today. Mm -hmm. And so... I just retired. It was, it was fantastic to have time for myself. To have, in the first instance, to have two days off a week and then three days off the next. Two days off, three days off. So it meant four day weekends, five days. It's a gorgeous way Brilliant. to, 
you know. I look and, forward to it. And, and, uh, yeah, and uh, it is a thing, a lot of people are f afraid of retirement. The thing is, just to live your life openly and be up for a challenge that comes in every stage of your life, and to me, is absolutely glorious stage of life. I love, I love an old yeah. saying, I think it said it to you the last time we met, that uh, roles retire and people perspire. Is that, is that the word? You know, rules retire and people uh, expire. Expire. <laughs> that's. I think that's the uh, expire. Rules retire and people expire. Yeah. Uh, uh, and you, I think, yes. have embraced retirement. I've certainly not. I've embraced my life. Yeah. Um, I think I work harder now than I ever worked. Although I always was very committed, and you know, uh, living in a very uh, high positive energy. As you talked to me earlier, um, it was fabulous. And living in high positive energy, you get back what you put into life. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a no-brainer. And before we move on, I'm going to ask you about what you do now. I'd like you just to, just very quickly, something that you said to me there. You said a lot there, that, and I've written down lots of words, but one that I would like to, to ask you about. And I suppose, Brian, I'm asking you this because what I'm hoping to get from these conversations is an insight or an understanding of, of I mean, the clues in the title, what really matters. Right. You know, uh, and, and maybe, you know, maybe if I interview or podcast with enough people, uh, I will have lots of arrows pointing to the secret meaning of life in some way, you know. <laughs> uh, if you get enough, you, you know, I'm kind of thinking if I choose enough people with a, a wide enough demographic and then I can see a, a common thread running through them all, then maybe that common thread is the secret of life, and I'm saying that tongue in cheek, but maybe that common thread is what really matters. Yeah. You know, and that, that's what I hope to get. And you said something, and when you talked about your very early childhood, uh, you lit up. Uh -huh. So emotionally and physically, and uh, your physiology changed. Uh -huh. uh, and you talked about a great role model, uh, being your father. And I'd love you just to expand on that. What, so what is, what was a great role model? But what were the qualities, the attributes of a great role model? Funny when you said um, a great role model, I immediately thought of my mother just now. Okay, yeah. Okay. yeah. So I'm not going to go through her whole life, but I'm going to mm -hmm. tell you about her death, mm -hmm. okay? which is a real exemplar of how to live your life and how to die. Mm -hmm. This is a role to me. This is. So the role is, so my mother was completely tuned in to herself, physically. She could feel all her, she knew immediately she was dying, she mm -hmm. took sick. Mm -hmm. She was emotionally balanced about it. Um, she talked about it to me. We shared it. Uh, there was no fear. Initially, we didn't have a diagnosis, but my mother knew because she was connected to her core. And that was a big thing to me, to learn to be connected to yourself, to t totally trust your inner voice. She was teaching me that. Mm -hmm. okay. I didn't realize at the time, I can see it now in hindsight, how um, she had dealt with her issues. She was at peace. Mm -hmm. She was... Well, could be a fighter, you know, mm -hmm. could give it a bit of yak, 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 but always from a place of love and kindness, mm -hmm. never trying to undermine. That was a role to me, a beautiful role. Um, 
So to deal with her issues, she had many people came to see her at the end. She talked to them about things that were important between them to leave it all beautifully, you know, all the ends tied up. Mm -hmm. And she was very spiritually connected throughout the whole thing. She was um, just casting herself on the ocean of spirit. Mm -hmm. And to me, um, that was a magnificent role model. I'll not go right through it, but just to say that in my mother's death, to the very last moment, everything mattered. Okay. She was alert and said all the beautiful things she had to say in the very last moments. To me, that was magnificence. It's um, not just a way to die, it's a way to live your life, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's something that I have come to learn, I'll maybe talk about later, those three aspects that she embraced there. My dad was a very um, balanced person. Um, I've never been into how a person looks, you know, I, I, um, well, maybe I can tell how beautiful a woman is, but I haven't been aware of male attractiveness. But showing uh, people my late father's photograph, they say, oh, how handsome. He's mm -hmm. like a film star. Mm -hmm. He had this fantastic look, bearing, he dressed beautifully. Um, I think he, everybody has struggles in life. I don't want to idealize my parents. Mm -hmm. I think a massive struggle for my father. Uh, he, I now realize that and it impacted on my own life. Uh, fear of lack was a big thing in my father's life and I inherited that from him. Given his generation, it's not... Um, it's not from my mother, I inherited fear of physical disaster, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've had to uh, integrate all that from my own life and I've seen from my father that... Um, his own father died when he was 10, which is a traumatic loss, terrible abandonment. Mm -hmm. it, uh, just at the same time, around the same time, his grandfather, my great-grandfather, had a beautiful business in London on uh, the Edgware Road. Fantastic, lovely big business and went bankrupt just at the time of the great crash around the world. And so my family were plunged. I was looking at a photograph of my grandmother the other day. I was having it restored and reframed. It's a hundred-year-old photograph. And you could see how well off they were by her tennis whites, her lovely tennis racket, her patent leather shoes, the beautiful watch she was wearing, the garden, the plants around her. And suddenly my father was plunged into having to leave school at 14 to support a widowed mother. He was the eldest child. There was this fear of lack. Mm -hmm. My father, um, I, I'm saying this to balance it with, you know, of course, you know, it's not cloud cuckoo land. My parents had all their own issues. Yes, and, of course. And every parent does try their best, I think, mm -hmm. even though they make a complete muck of it. And you can beat up your parents. And I could, I mean, I think they sent me to the wrong school. It was outside my community. But mm -hmm. they had left school at 14. They didn't know about, you know, going on to A-levels and on to university. I was the first yeah. person in my family to, to go to university. And, uh, 
you know, you could be annoyed at them. I think I was at the time. I think I said to them, but uh, they were always doing their best. And and, and uh, my father um, brought complete commitment to us, uh, honesty, integrity, a lot of core values that I, you know, have inherited and put into my my own life. It's funny as you were chatting there. It's funny you just mentioned them because. Uh I scribbled as you were chatting about your mum and chatting about your mum and, and chatting about your dad. I scribbled down a few words and some of those words were honesty, compassion, attunement and attention. Uh, and then you just happened, you just happened to say uh, those, those things about your father, which is, yeah. which is really nice. Yeah. And I think that's, it's very useful to get an insight. Mm-hmm. It's very useful to get an insight into a person uh, when discussing the relationship or that sort of timeline questioning, parental timeline questioning, uh, that people have a relationship to their parents. Yeah. And, and I think you're right in that everyone, there's a great saying in the work that I do, everyone does the best with the resources at their disposal. Yeah. And be they intellectual, financial, mm. spiritual, emotional mm. resources. Everyone does the best with their resources at their disposal. And I think when we look at our parents, I've done a lot of that work myself, and you think you could offer or cast a lot of blame oh, yeah. their direction. Uh, but c- giving them that blame mm-hmm. is then giving them responsibility for how you behave now as an adult human yeah. being. Yeah. And, and that blame might be okay for an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old, yeah. but for a 45-year-old or a man like yourself, I'm not sure that that blame serves any purpose at all except to hold you back. Oh, yeah. You know? Uh, and uh, remember forgiveness forgiveness is a gift to yourself yep completely completely well said and well remembered uh so for for a lighter question uh <laughs> well that was, it was lovely to think of my parents <laughs> yeah good to bring good. it all out into the light of day it's yeah. gorgeous good good mm. uh and, and it, it brings it alive again that that memory mm. that, that yeah. creates that energy yeah, no, and thanks. thoughts are things and you know and it just creates that energy uh what's your favorite way to spend your time Quite a few ways. First thing I thought of was outdoors. The very first thought came into my head was sailing. I love to sail. Uh, I took to boating. My father put me in a little rowing boat in Portrush Harbour when I was no age. Learned to row when I was tiny. Um, Find a lovely association with the water. Um, Although it can go from... um, you know, say um, ocean sailing can, you can go from total boredom and a flat calm, utterly without boundaries, like your mind having nothing to, con- you know, to contain it. You just, it's a free flow. It can be a bit scary at times. Yeah. This total thing, you know, and then you just relax into it and start to enjoy it. Right through from boredom, you can go, if you see the speedometer of emotion, it can go right up to completely terrified, a bar-tight tension across the back of your shoulders as you're meeting waves, uh, you know, in the North Atlantic, uh, every wave the height of a two-story house. Um, Sailing has that, but uh, to me, um, it's a spiritual sport. You know, you can't see the wind. You have to really tune your senses, become yeah. fully aware to harness that energy. It's free energy. You're hurting nothing, you know, consuming something that's just transient and you're not taking away from that wind. 
it's passing on to somebody else. Mm -hmm. And uh, to me, I mentioned earlier, you know, that I feel very connected to all that is really physically the um, landscape, the seascape, the skyscape, which is really the universe, the whole 13.5 billion years of us. Yeah. And um, this aspect of sailing is the sea and uh, the beauty of being alive. The fantastic, and I realize the fantastic way you can breathe in this lovely pranic atmosphere out mm -hmm. at sea, you know, um, gorgeous clean air coming all around you. You can choose to take as much of it as you want. And given that you've just mentioned the word, uh, I'm sure it's not the first time you mentioned that, breathe. Uh, tell us a little bit about, tell us a little bit about, about that and, and, and your, your role or your focus and your attention on that part of life. Give you a bit of a lead into it because it's, it's in in one lifetime terms it was a long journey, you know, of course mm -hmm. it's nothing. Um, I'd been uh, quite unhappy in my late twenties and um, you can probably tell, you know, I'm a positive person just listening to me. And, mm -hmm. um, I look for the best in life, it's my default. Or if a thing isn't good, I'll make something of the situation to make it, you know, to learn from it or to grow from it. And, um, my beautiful fortune was that out of this real uh, point of despair in my late 20s, that I just uh, stumbled onto the path. And uh, I didn't know what to do. I wasn't in any way religious. I'm still not religious. Uh, in that religion, I think, is a human construct of trying to come to terms with spirit and actually putting boundaries on it and mm -hmm. using it as a power tool mm -hmm. and controlling and creating status and wealth. Um, I try to live outside that. While at the same time not losing sight of, the, you know, the key essence that within is, is within religion. Mm -hmm. um, but to cut a long story short, Spirit heard me. It's sort of, if you imagine a little kitten, and Spirit was cat, and I was kitten, and cat picked kitten up and put it on the path and gave me a little delicate boot in the backside <laughs> <laughs> and started me on my journey to awakening and the first thing was to draw on the reservoir of the lovely um, ancestral line I have and I was aware of my Quaker roots and uh, I remember meeting elderly great aunts when I was about five year old and being fascinated maybe laughing about it a bit because I didn't know how to articulate it. How calm and centered, how still they were, and I could feel that. I was very aware as a five-year-old. And uh, I brought that back into my memory. And uh, I couldn't find a Quaker meeting. I didn't know, you know, I didn't know what to do. I just, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a very conscious process. 
And uh, my archaeological work took me up to uh, Black Mountain, you know, north of Belfast, mm -hmm. this lovely uh, range of mountains that are like the theatrical backdrop to the city of Belfast. And went to this cottage and met this very nice uh, young woman and said I was looking for such and such an archaeological site on the summit of the Black Mountain. And I uh, climbed this incredibly steep slope, then come out onto the summit to find that uh, it was in the clouds. It was hard to see too far, but I thought I'd give it a try. Unfortunately, I took a compass bearing towards where I knew the site should be, using my map and you know my, um, my skills of navigation. took a compass bearing, and I walked towards the site and got completely engulfed in a mist and uh, realized I wasn't going to find the site <laughs> that I'd set out to find but just as well I'd taken the reciprocal you know taken the compass bearing because I put a, a reciprocal on it 180 degrees and I simply walked back on a bearing and followed trusted the compass to bring me back and there it was I came to the steep slope and no time at all, I was out into the daylight. Came down to the cottage and talked to the young woman who's fascinating. She was um, a person, a potter actually, in residence in this cottage. What was this cottage? It was Quaker Cottage. Okay. So I had this really interesting chat with her and uh, feeling all the time, well, this is meaningful. This is meaningful. And... Um, so uh, the parting comment from the young woman was, oh, there's a meeting in Belfast. You should go to it. So I said, oh, thank you, and left her and went on with my work. On the Friday, I went shopping in a supermarket on the Lisburn Road and uh, met the young woman with a young man who was very animated and interesting to talk to him. He stood in the aisles. And he told me a little bit about the project where the Quakers had this cottage to help people who really, really needed support in life. People who the social services passed by. He said, oh, you should go to the meeting. It's um, quarter to 11 in uh, 22 Marlborough Park, on Lisburn Road, Marlborough Park North. So I went to the meeting. And uh, I see things visually. Uh, it's the way, way I experience life. Uh, of course, we have all our senses. And we have them all, you know, auditory, visual, kinesthetic. I have them all. I am very kinesthetic. I do listen, but visual is a real strength of mine. And so in this, I came into this point, very agitated young man unhappy and I had this image can you imagine a beautiful shiny green apple we call them granny smiths around mm -hmm. these parts mm -hmm. a granny smith it had its stem or its stalk and, and the, some invisible force like a very sharp knife had cut down through the stalk and through the apple and so you had a half a beautiful green apple Half the stalk, you know, vertically mm -hmm. incised, yeah. the the shiny green exterior, very very lovely exterior, 
and the flawless, beautiful, creamy white interior. And in that moment, in the silence, I came together with the other half of the apple. It was a moment of wholeness, of coming, coming back to who I truly was. And so I've um, had now a lifelong journey. I've been going to France since 81. Um, I became a member in 84. I've been the clerk six years back to back. I've, I've been in a beautiful association with this um, practice of uh, Quaker worship, which is there isn't, there isn't really a structure to it. it. We all just come in to the meeting, we sit down, nobody knows what anybody else is doing, and in no time at all, there's this beautiful gathered meeting, silence, something you could practically touch, uh, being collectively centered and in the presence of the divine. It's a Christian group, but you don't have to follow any rules. Things are there. Quakers say, you know, the Bible says this, the Bible says this. Other great writers and teachers and leaders have said this. But what can you say? Mm -hmm. it's, this, it's this moment of self-referral. Quakers do say there is that of God in everyone. And it's to realize your own divinity, to sit in that silence and realizing that uh, however humanly frail we are, there is that entire divine potential within us, no matter how bad we've been. Uh, and there are some really bad actions that people have had in lives. Mm -hmm. No matter how awful an action has been, there is still that aspect of the divine in every single person. That's a, that's a core tenet of Quakerism. And one that I ascribe to. And um, after a while of going to the meeting, about six months, I saw one man sitting and I could see that he was even more deeply focused and centered. And I went and spoke to him. I said, what is it? You're doing something. I know it. And uh, he just took out a piece of paper and he wrote on it, James Anderson, telephone number. He said, go and ask James. James. <laughs> nice way to answer a question. And so um, in October 81, I learned to meditate. I meditate morning and evening. There's the occasional day I might miss in one of them, but never in both of them. Uh, I try never to miss. It's like the tick tock, tick tock, morning, evening, morning, evening. The metronome of my life is based on meditation, of going inward, of settling down, 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 down. Really quiet, of coming to that still point of center. To be calm, to be relaxed, I thought at the start, and it's mm -hmm. given me that in bucket loads. It will give anybody that to center into your own beautiful presence. That point of utter beauty that lives inside you, to come to that twice every day, 
to bring it out again and <laughs> deliver it in your life when you go out and you meet people. I'm coming here to chat to you. Mm -hmm. I've been doing my meditation this morning. Mm -hmm. I've been listening to myself, feeling the vibrational energy in myself. It is a discipline. You might say, you know, that's nearly an hour of my day every day. We only have 24 hours. Eight of them we spend sleeping. At least you should. If you don't, mm -hmm. you should. Sleep is really important. Um, so out of my 16-hour day, I have chosen to devote one hour a day to non-visible action. Mm -hmm. But it is the most important action of my day because it just so floods me with energy that I can do all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. I don't have to fill my mind with mindless chatter. <laughs> I can be present, mindful, uh, living right in the moment. Uh, uh, I can deal with the past in the meditation. Mm -hmm. I can have the confidence to gracefully, easily move forward into the future. But, but in those moments to live right in the present, completely connected to who I truly am. And so this is a long story, uh, but it, it's, it's made my life. Um, if there was one decision in my life that I've taken, I think that was it, to meditate. Hmm. Um, that's an important message, isn't it? So meditation, I'm used to going still, deep, connected. But I don't know that it did everything for me. Um, I'd been doing it for over 30 years when I came to the breath. And a wise woman, a friend, she lent me a CD. She said, I think this might be for you. It was a CD of Conscious Connected Breathing. That's a generic name for what I now do. And uh, I sat down. I was living alone, very content, living in my beautiful home in St. Field, a total spiritual gift to me. A house that's just filled with, you know, lovely energy. I sat down in my armchair, put on the CD, and changed my life. Um, I was used to going deep, you know, from what I've just said. Mm -hmm. oh, where did I go? <laughs> just somewhere I had never been to before. Utterly profound. I'm not sure what happened. I just knew I'd been to a place of exquisite beauty. And when I came out of it, I just became aware of my physicality and my whole face was all washed with tears. Uh, just flooded with tears. What I'd been releasing, who knows? Mm. I wonder where, because I now know you don't need to know. Mm. And um, so I said to the wise woman, I need to do that. I need to share that. Uh, who's doing it? And there's nobody in Ireland doing it. But by good fortune, a guy called Alan Dolan, he lives in Lanzarote. He happened to come to Dublin the next week. And Louis is always fully booked up because he's such a legend in the breath work. He had a place for me. And I went and did a session with Alan Dolan in Dublin. And I always write and thank Alan for that session. Because every cell in my body was suffused with the divine. Beautiful vibrating energy. 
of divinity, uh, to give it that word. Maybe, maybe somebody listening to this might stumble over divine mm -hmm. or God. Yeah. It's just a shorthand. It was all of that universe that I talked about, uh, about the different aspects of the landscape, everything coming into one, vibrating in every cell in my body. Uh, and the message was, share this. So I looked it up online. I was completely broke. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's a relatively expensive thing to do. Although mm -hmm. once you've paid for it, you realize it's so inconsequential, the payment, mm -hmm. um, for what it gives you. And uh, I booked into a transformational breath, personal levels one to three, in Edinburgh, uh, organized by a lady, Denise Borland, but led by a guy from Nairobi, Kenya. Vincent Olo, and uh, I was broke, and I was thinking, oh, maybe I could stay in a hostel. How could I cut corners? And some voice in me said, no, Brian, this is for you. So I, I booked the most expensive hotel. It was a fantastic experience. The staff in the hotel seemed to tune into what I, my vibration, and they treated me like royalty for the whole week. Uh, and I stepped into the most profound week of my life. The overarching message from the week, and there were many messages once you have to share this. I'm coming home, I just Googled it. Next level, level four, Italy. Off I went to Italy. Started those, this whole incredible relationship with breathing in Italy with a wonderful doyen of transformational breath, um, Indalatia Zirit, a Venezuelan lady who has been my mentor, my guide, uh, my friend. Uh, she um, has taught me so much. And, um, so I did level four. Well, it's a 14-day course, but we split it up into two weeks. So I did it in the summertime in Italy with everywhere I looked when I was outside the breathing room in this beautiful uh, uh, natural park where we were doing it. Everywhere I looked, there were a thousand butterflies. Turn your head in any direction, you see a thousand butterflies. <laughs> you know, it was just amazing. Uh, sort of representing all the consciousness of the people who were there. And, mm -hmm. You know, in Ireland, the butterfly represents the soul. I have, I have, Canium said, spirit. I have several tattooed on me. Brad, <laughs> did you notice? I have, I, I have, I have a body. walking art gallery. I have a body full of full of tattoos. Uh -huh. Or full of uh, butterflies. Butterflies, sorry, okay. Farfalla in Italian. I learned to speak Italian. Io parlo italiano. Um, I've done a lot of work there. Met wonderful friends. I have a whole international breathwork family. I asked Indonesia. Um, in 2013, would she come to Northern Ireland? I said, we're very broken and hurt, traumatized society. Would you come here and help us to start to let us unfold? You know, saying a very tight rosebud and just mm -hmm. to start to open it. And uh, Indonesia arrived St. Patrick's Week in 2014. Um, we had a fantastic, um, level one course and Sally Taylor's yurt, if you remember I that, do. up yeah. around yeah. Yeah. yeah, I do. <laughs> and uh, 
I always think very warmly of Sally when I think of her. And uh, that has unfolded into now we run five weeks a year, three personal levels, one to three. Remember my own journey with the guy from Nairobi? Now I, I've been organizing those now for five years. We also run um, a level four course in the two weeks each year, level 4A, level 4B. That's five weeks a year. We started off running them, um, well actually how I got the venue was quite beautiful. Um, I was just breathing at home in the house. I knew I needed to get a venue if I was going to be anyway successful. And uh, his voice came to me. He said, Tuberware. Mm -hmm. And so I got on the Google after the breathing session. Didn't take long to get it. And uh, contact, phoned them up. This is like 10 minutes after the breathing, max. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Talking to the receptionist. She says, oh, come and see us. So I was there. It's only the next village, you know, it's yeah. 10 minutes to yeah. cross Gar. Mm -hmm. No time at all, I was driving up the winding, gorgeous, landscaped avenue, very calming through the beech wood to this beautiful house of the late 18th century. Came into the very contemporary extension, but back to the reception. Within an hour, I had the whole thing booked, and we've had event after event after event. And now the energy has shifted. I've moved, we're running everything in Ben Burb. Mm -hmm. Throughout this process, I was a facilitator in training after I'd done my level four, so I could organize. I couldn't do very much at the events, but I did what I could. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, surprise, surprise, I became a certified facilitator of transformational breath. And just by you know, like patience and per perseverance, and uh, like the snail came to Jerusalem. Uh, I've come out into the sunny uplands of being a senior trainer of transformational breath. I'm, I'm going to put a little link to your work and mm -hmm. your, your website, mm -hmm. uh, Brian, on, on the podcast, so people that want to yeah, investigate yeah. that a little bit more yeah. can do that. I'll give you, I'll give you three nice links uh, yeah. to the international site, to the UK site, and to my own website. Um, so, maybe is this the moment? I know you're asking the question. Shall I tell you a little bit about transformational breath? I would love you to tell mm. me a little bit. Of, just uh, have a drink of water. Absolutely. Just as you're building up to it, it's, it's really interesting, Brian, because I, you said something really earlier on in the conversation, and it's kind of, it's hooked. It's hooked on my mind, uh, and all, th all through what you've been talking, it's still, it's still hooked there. and, and and I just want to say it because because it is hooked there. And you, you said a phrase, you used a phrase, and you said the pulse of the landscape. And I think that's a wonderful phrase. Uh, you know, it's it's reminiscent or it's reminded me of John O'Donoghue, who's a guy that I really like to read, I sort of spiritual teacher. And and then when you talked about, you know, you went on to talk then about land and sea and, and beyond sky and mm. universe and you know all that is all, all, all that is all that is you know and divinity and god uh, and presence and you know all of those things that you have floated around through this conversation 
And to me, the overarching or the, the, the encompassing statement is, is the pulse of the landscape. And if you change universe or cosmos to landscape, and that has me thinking of that, you know, the pulse of the landscape, as in the greater landscape, not not okay. the land we walk on, but the universal yeah. landscape, the universal which landscape. encompasses sky and sea moon. and breath and moon and sun and, and emotion and yeah. energy everything. and every, everything, everything, you know, everything. And I just love that, that, I just love that, that okay. those four words. So and don't forget, it's quantum physics mm -hmm. that everything has a vibrational energy. Of course. Not just the physical. Yep. The intangible. Yep. Everything has a vibrational energy. Your emotion, your thoughts. Okay, your... so we are born to live on planet Earth and there's a whole electromagnetic field around the Earth. We all know about that. Mm -hmm. There's a vibrational energy within the Earth mm -hmm. and before I did transformational breath, to me, you know, I was calm, centered, connected. It was easy for me to fly off to be connected to the sky, to the spirit. It's very easy. In a way, it led me to a kind of spiritual arrogance. Mm. You know, I'm connected to this. Mm. I could look at other people. I'm a projector. I could see they weren't. And I wasn't seeing it from a place of love necessarily. I think I was seeing it from a place of arrogance. Judgment. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm connected. But uh, what I've come to learn is that if you imagine a sparking plug in an engine, you know the lovely cream ceramic top yep. and the... Mm -hmm. Okay, we're like sparking plugs. This is my visual <laughs> explanation coming again. And um, our position as humans is to be connected to all that is, but also to be connected to the earth and grounded. Mm -hmm. To be that beautiful interface between earth and sky. That's our role. And uh, I've come to learn about being grounded. So I devote a lot of uh, my awareness to be feeling the vibration of the earth, to tuning into it. If you want to tune into it beautifully, just go and stand against a nice mature tree, mm -hmm. put your back to it. Imagine yourself putting out the roots into the ground, the same as the tree. Empathize with the tree and you start to feel the energy. And the, more, the more you practice becoming energetically aware, the more you will feel the vibrations. And just to choose to be in the right vibration at all time. That could lead me on to another thing, to take all your energy from nature from source, from the divine, not to take it from others. Maybe that's a whole conversation we could have mm. about avoiding control dramas mm -hmm. and living in the pure energy of goodness, like the sun is streaming in around us now, like we can hear the birds, like we can feel the gentle breeze coming across our cheeks right mm -hmm. now in this room, to take your energy from that, okay? Not to steal it from others, to give it, to totally give it, I'm giving it to you right this moment. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, and I'm feeling it. Yeah. <laughs> to as you give that energy, there's no loss to yourself because it's like a suction system. The more you give it away, you're sucking it in from all that is. All uh, that is is infinite, so you can have as much from me as you want. I'll give it to you. Mm -hmm. okay? 
I like to think of to me, and it sounds a very religious statement, and it's not at all, because like mm. you, Bran, I, I probably have a very similar relationship to religion, as mm. you, or organised religion. Yeah, and I, mm. yeah. I, I like to think of that to me, through me, and from me idea of, of energy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. A and, conduit. And, a conduit. Yeah. yeah. And sure. sometimes I like to think of myself, and to get visual again, if you think of a little piece of uh, copper wire, yeah. and we're trying to pass a current through a little crocodile clip from uh -huh. one end to the other. Yeah. When we are connected mm -hmm. and attuned and aware, that energy will flow through yeah. easily. Yeah. You know, without without being yeah. hampered. So, so with your copper wire, you need to remove any blockages in your copper exactly. wire. Exactly. The little resistors okay. that are that so are along there. So that's what the breath does for you. Okay. Brilliant. All right. So, transformational breath. You know, there's, as you know, there's. A million and one ways to breathe. Some of them are really ancient. They're Vedic. Uh, I'm sure our own societies, you know, in Ireland had their breathing techniques. It just mm -hmm. haven't come down to us necessarily. But um, there are lovely ways that you can breathe that have come down to us cascading down the generations. The transformational breath belongs to the school of conscious connected breathing, as I was saying to you. Not really started in uh, the 60s and 70s. People trying to f find a better way to go instead of inducing uh, gateways to spirit through chemicals like LSD and so mm -hmm. on, which I don't bother with anything like Ayahuasca. that. Ayahuasca. Okay. DMT. Um, to do it through your breath. And so you had... Um, you know, very early pioneers in the breath, and there became the rebirthing movement. And one young woman who was part of that was Judith Kravitz, who um, Russian American. And Judith was in the rebirthing movement, and she had two children, uh, and she developed a large cancerous tumor on her neck. She was 29. Uh, two babies, it was walking her talk, she decided to breathe her way to health. Um, so in the process of bringing herself back to health, and um, she developed what we now call transformational breath, which is building on the beautiful different other techniques of holotropic breath work and rebirthing. Um, and Personally, I think it's uh, a rocket fuel route, you know, of, uh, not that it's immediate, it's an, an unfolding process, like mm -hmm. taking layers of an onion. There is no magic wand in life, you have to work on yourself. You but work. if you want to go at it, really, why I say rocket fuel, in a really good way that will disentangle all the ball of nuts in your life, is transformation of breath. Judith uh, went into remission, she went on to have eight ch children of her own and two adopted children, ten children. I've just spent a week with her in Italy, a wonderful week, driving a little with Judith and chatting and getting to know her really well personally and not going into the profound questions of life, just chatting, mm -hmm. you know, being very relaxed with her, she being with me. Uh, so she has given me a lot in life, this toolkit of how to um, transform your life, 
And um, why would you do transformational breath if you're listening to me? You know that slightly irritating advert, right? Does what it says in the tin. Yeah. <laughs> it does transform your life. Mm-hmm. You can come to it from a very quiet, centered place like I did with decades of meditation. Or you can come to it from a position of total brokenness. Uh, and many of my clients do, you know, a last point of what on earth am I going to do? I'm so in a mess. Um, you can do it through physical reasons, you know. Um, to, the way you would do transformational breath is the breath is a metaphor for your life. If you have a shallow, restricted breathing pattern, your life will be shallow and restricted. It's to allow you to develop with the tools that I have and the knowledge that I have, and I'm not setting myself up as a guru, as a real, like I'm just learning like everybody else, but I do my best with you, is to allow you to develop a very open, conscious, connected breath that takes in all the goodness that you're entitled to. Like when you're born a little baby, you're entitled to as much air as you want. Mm-hmm. It's, your, it's your inheritance, you know, your birthright. And people choose to shut that down they breathe through clenched teeth. Mm-hmm. They don't bring their breath in their belly. They don't bring it into their chest. <coughs> Excuse me. And it's all a metaphor. And if you start to develop physically a lovely open breath, which I will coach you towards, when you do that, it's like you're having a dog. You know, you say that you can see the dog is happy because it's wagging its tail. Well, I, I won't. I used to say, if I wagged a dog's tail, would it make it happy? <laughs> I don't know if that. I don't know if that stacks up. But if you have a closed breath, your life will be closed. You'll not be living your life to the full. By doing transformational breath, as you open up to a full, beautiful, taking breath, filling every cell in your body with goodness, so that metaphor will act out. It'll be a bit like wagging the dog's tail. You by by changing you physically, I'll change you mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Mm-hmm. Not I. I will help you mm-hmm. to do it yourself. Yeah. And so, um, what is it? Everybody's breathing experience is different. Every single session you do will be different. It's like, you, you know, fingerprints, they're unique. And so we, every session is unique. Uh, but there is uh, an analysis you can make of a breathing session that it works on three levels. The three levels, the first one is physical. So you're going to be opening your mouth. It's all mouth breathing. The reason for that is the mouth breathing activates the lower four chakras from the root right up to the heart. Nose breathing, and there is nose breathing in transformational breath, but not at the basic stages. Mm-hmm. Nose breathing opens up your throat your third eye, and your crown chakra. So with me, when you come to me, you'll be breathing through an open mouth. Some people find that very hard because you hold so much in your jaw. Mm -hmm. So you're going to be taking in far more air. That's going to affect you physically. It's going to go down, you know, your trachea, through the bronchia, into your lungs, into the little alveoli, and be circulated right around your bloodstream. You're designed, you're like a, you know, as a petrol engine is to petrol, so your human respiratory system is to air, and oxygen in particular. You're going to flood yourself with oxygen from the soles of your feet 
to the tippy top of your head, you're going to be <laughs> vibrating every cell of your body with what it's designed to take. Full of goodness, oxygen, okay? So it's really physical. Don't forget, breathing isn't just about inhaling, so you're bringing in all your good. Ooh. That might manifest as tingling in your fingers, maybe numbness around your mouth, dizziness in the top or the sides of your head. This is all because your body's not used to being so flooded with oxygen. There's also the component part of each breath, which is the exhale. 70% of all the toxins that you ever expel from your body come out in your exhale. Okay? It's going on 20,000 breaths a day, steadily taking out. So, so remember the blood is taking the oxygen all around the body. And then there's an interchange and the carbon dioxide is coming into the red cells and it's all coming back through the veins up to the heart and expelled. And so you're having principally carbon dioxide, but all the other little chemicals, toxins in your body, you're having this gorgeous inhale all my goodness, exhale all my bad. In, if that's a judgmental term, in, exhale all my toxins, let's put it that way, okay? Breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out. You're also working your lymphatic system. So you're having an incredible lymphatic drainage right on your, under your diaphragm, you're only using your diaphragm to breathe. Right in under the diaphragm are all these lymph nodes and they're going in to really perform. You know, this is, you're now, see yourself, you're no longer a fear uno once you start to breathe. You come in to me as a fear uno. Now, I'm embodying my Ferrari ship, okay? So, under your diaphragm are all these lymphatic nodes and you're going to have this massive lymphatic drainage. So when you come to me, you're going to drink lots of water. You're going to go to the toilet. You're going to have that other way of expelling toxins, taking a lot of trips to the loo, or your whole lymphatic system. So it's coming out in your breath. It's coming out in your lymphatic system. So that's the physical level. You're going to be very energized. You'll feel it. Most people say to me, what is all this tingling in my hands? I feel so oh, alive. It's physical. So the second level is mental-emotional. So as you start to breathe in the correct way, or even attempting to, maybe your breath is absolutely mucked up from the whole you know, difficulties of your life. Even so, you'll still benefit. As you start, I'll be with you every breath. I'll be helping you. You're not on your own. Completely facilitated. So the left and right sides, the hemispheres of your brain are starting to come into balance. And you are going to start to work with the unconscious uh, to release trapped emotions, hurts, wounds, all the things that we gather up right from the word go. You come into this world a beautiful little baby and what they do, cut your umbilical. Yeah. And you start to distort your breathing pattern. You get smacked on the bottom, back. Ah, it's all, and these are all things you know the day and daily routine of ordinary life sets us up with challenges, with messages, and you can choose to uh, respond to them, but we react so often just, <gasps> and fear. We stop breathing mm -hmm. when we're in fear. And so I'll be bringing you back to that. The emotions will start to release. I have a technique that I'll introduce people to, how to lift, say the emotion coming out is, vib everybody, everything's vibrating, mm -hmm. we're talking about that. So um, emotions like fear, grief, anger, 
sadness, whatever, um, all, all vibrate at a low frequency. Mm -hmm. We want to have them vibrating at a beautiful high energy. So this brings us to another law of physics. We talked about quantum physics now. I'll talk to you about the law of entrainment. And that law of entrainment is where you put two energetic forces together, vibrational energies. So you've got the negative vibrational energy, and the beautiful high vibrational energy of your spirit. And with the technique I have, I bring up the negative vibration to a lovely high. Together we work to do it together. Mm -hmm. So when you release an emotion, it's like a ratchet system on a winch. It cannot go back. It's gone. Mm -hmm. Okay, that thing that you suppressed since you were a little boy or whatever, uh, suppression is where you consciously decide, I'm just storing that in the subconscious. I'll come back and I'll deal with it, mm -hmm. but not today because I have a big business decision to make today. I cannot deal with that. I'm parking it in the subconscious. And of course, you never come back to that dustbin of the mm -hmm. unconscious. Or even deeper, something happens to you, it's so shocking so hurtful that you have even no memory of it. You repress it. It's Freudian. Mm -hmm. okay, all the terms in transformational breath are really it's from Freudian psychology. And so um, this allows you to bring out suppressions, repressions, to become aware of a thing. It's the thing that, you know that emotion that burns, you know, you have to push it away again. Mm -hmm. That memory, so, oh my God, I can't deal with that. And you do, you then, uh, introduce a mechanism of defense. I'll just have a cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. um, I'll just go and I need to buy myself. I need a book on Amazon. I'm just mm -hmm. going to go on and I'll, I'll buy it online now. That's a mechanism of defense to stop mm -hmm. you dealing. We'll talk later maybe about uh, staying with feelings. Yeah, so I encourage you to stay with the feeling. If it hurts, stay with it. That's how you will defuse it, for want of a better word. Um, to integrate it, that's the right word, to integrate an emotion, then of course you'll still have the memory of that emotion, but it will no longer burn, mm -hmm. it won't be juicy. It's not gonna trigger you every time. You won't have to do a mechanism of defense when you think about lack. Suddenly mm -hmm. I have to go off and do something different. Um, so in that process, during a breathing session, you can integrate uh, four large, trapped emotions in the, in the timetable we allow. That's enough. Then we allow a period of integration of just no intervention from me, just, just coming, into, coming into level three, just connecting to who you truly are, to accepting all your good, to taking in what is it I need in life? What are the messages for me? Like I kept hearing, share this. Mm -hmm. You may hear voices, you may see images. Uh, you may just, well, this is the thing that I have in common with the third level, which is called spiritual. Um, there, it is not a religious belief system. This is it's just a breathing technique, but you connect to that place that the Quakers talk about, that of God in every person. You connect to something beautiful inside yourself. The very least, and it's common to every single person I've ever breathed, is that they feel calm and relaxed. That's the least you will mm -hmm. get from spiritual level and then you'll come out of it and um, your life will somehow magically have moved on transformed uh, of course it's just the start of a journey you have to really work on yourself 
uh, it has taken a lifetime to get to where you are with your trapped breath. It takes work. You have to continue to vote, be committed to yourself. You can't help anybody until you've helped yourself. Mm -hmm. You know when they go on the aeroplane and they do the demo with the safety instruction, they said, when the mask falls, put your own mask on first before you help anyone else. And that's true. How can you help anyone when you're not helping yourself? You must come. Our society, in a way, gives us an attitude that it's selfish to help yourself. Yeah, to attend to yourself. They do. It is not. It is the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I remember um, seeing in a meditation one time, I was in a place of beautiful stillness, this sheet of water in a pond, and I could just see myself slipping into the pond. I was at the center, absolutely feeling complete, and all the ripples coming out from me when I went into the pond, that is the source, this, the silence, and how I affected those closest to me and beyond, way out to my neighborhood, my colleagues, rippling, 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 rippling away out to the whole universe, how my centeredness was affecting everything. Okay? And so uh, our whole society is it's like cells, you know, each one of us is individuals. To have a healthy society, you know, we should all tend to ourselves first, to our nearest and dearest and neighbors and out beyond. Uh, but, but priority is to deal with yourself, to love yourself. So you can, if you might have a core belief that you pick up in childhood, I'm a loser, mm -hmm. I'm no good, I'm a bad boy. You can replace all those core beliefs that you unconsciously just assume, you know, everything goes wrong for me in life. That's a, that's a core belief. Mm -hmm. I'm a loser. Mm -hmm. You can have the most beautiful golf swing in the world. If you don't believe you're a winner, you won't win. Mm -hmm. you know? So I can work a lot with sports people to get to that very highest level of achievement where I deserve to win. I'm worthy to win. Mm -hmm. I'm good enough to win. Okay, change those core beliefs in the breath. And... Um, Little by little, coming to, you know, a point of um, wholeness, never completing the journey, <laughs> just always working, working, mm -hmm. working, purifying yourself. You know, if you are um, here, a, a soul incarnated to grow, this is, this is a good way to go. It's not the only way to go, mm -hmm. it's the way I've chosen to go. Mm -hmm. yeah. And. So what would you get out of it? Very nice, resolved life. You may still have your difficulties, but, uh, you know, life does have difficulties. That's all the challenges there to make you learn and grow. Instead of having this um, low negative energy that you talked about to me earlier, which has so impressed me, you know, you can draw from a difficulty. These are my messages. These are my gifts. That person who always so irritates me is, I mean, I'll talk about that a bit in a moment, is really giving me a message. And an opportunity to an opportunity, Okay. Mm -hmm. And to see that it's actually yourself you're seeing that person. Mm -hmm. and so that's, that's what I do physically. How does it work out? Um, I run one-to-one, -one, I offer one-to-one -one sessions in St. Field. People come to me. Um, I'm retired. It can be very relaxed. 
um, session. Well, I generally find out it works. Uh, the first time you come, it'll be just under two hours. Come and sit with me. Uh, we'll, it's not counselling, but you can tell me a bit about yourself. Um, but I'll be constantly listening to words like you've been writing down words. I'll be, I'll be doing that too. I'll be looking to coach a person towards an intention, because intentions are so important. Um, you know, if you, if you know what you want in life, you're halfway to getting it. If you know where you're going, like when we sail, we make a passage plan before we go. We don't just sail out the narrows of Strangford and suddenly, you know, bobbing around in the Irish Sea in the awful short wavelength that it has, uh, can be quite uncomfortable. We say, we write in the book, like an intention, a uh, passage towards Oban. Mm -hmm. We may not get to Oban. The weather, the tide, whatever, uh, might we might, because of a storm or whatever, have to end up in Glen Arm for the, that part of the, the journey. But at least we had an intention. Mm -hmm. It may unfold differently to what you write, but ultimately you'll still get to Oban. Mm -hmm. you know? And uh, if I have an intention, I love and accept myself. Halfway to getting it. So that's what I'm looking for. And when you come to me, it's to find an intention, what you truly want. I have lots of techniques and other, other uh, beautiful practices to bring a person who doesn't truly know what they want to, 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 to let's share this and work towards it. What is it you really want for your highest good? Then, um, so I have the one-to-one -one clients, which I absolutely adore. It's my favorite of all. Somebody, total stranger, rings the doorbell, ding dong, open the door, hello. Ten minutes later, they're telling you their deepest, most profound, innermost secret, mm -hmm. which is absolutely in confidence. Mm -hmm. Stays with me, mm -hmm. there's no judgment. Mm -hmm. uh, you might be, you know, can be anything. I'll not put any value on it. But uh, um, to me, it's another privilege to be of service to that person, sharing it. I run, um, well now my wife, who's a tra uh, trainer, Lucy, an absolute gift. We work together as a couple. Mm -hmm. She um, organizes workshops. We're having one next Tuesday night in the Quaker Meeting House in Lisburn Road. Uh, you can just come and do an introductory workshop. So we run those. Lucy's doing those as part of her whole, uh, she's actually called the group leader. She's working towards being a trainer at the moment, almost at it. Um, it's such a long, very carefully monitored process. We run two-day events called Reclaim Your Breath, and people come for that. We uh, do week-long events, it's six days actually, but you come a day before, just mm -hmm. to, so you start the beginning of the course with no travel, stress, tension, you're completely mm -hmm. relaxed and slept. And we do that all in a sacred environment in Ben Burb Priory, County Tyrone. Uh, and we've been running further courses, level four. Uh, I'm not qualified to lead a level four, but I organize for Indalea Shazirat. Um, uh, she comes from Milan. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's the sort of service that I'm offering to, not just to Northern Ireland, to the whole world. People come, oh my God, you couldn't believe it, Kevin. If you decide you want to do something, people will come out of the woodwork. Mm -hmm. And so you name it, they come from it. Uh, I had a guy, he flew from Abuja, Nigeria, 
to come to Tupperware, <laughs> flew to Heathrow, really fearful, afraid of flying. He had then had to have a second flight to Belfast and get the taxi out to Tupperware. He went home completely, just a different person, not even frightened. I love that when we do this work, Brian, and not that I do breathing work, but do similar work of trying to bring people to a point of mm. respite or, or yeah. fulfillment or, or whatever it is. But, yeah. but I love when you see that. Do you know when oh, you, yeah, you, you see, see it? it in people, see it. And there's no nicer feeling than. Whether it's in their complexion, or their, their eyes, face. or they're seeing their face. You and typically like, see a person coming in looking 50, and they go home looking 40. Yeah. You, know, you can drop 10 years in a week yeah. in your visible appearance. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just because you relax and yeah. uh, step into your own power. So, um, maybe not much of a nutshell, it's rather a long rambling chat, but, but that's what I do, basically, um, and intend to carry on. While I'm wanted, while that energy that said to me, share this, while it wants me to do it, I'll do it. It was a brilliant answer. Let, let, let me ask you uh, another couple of questions, and I'm just, oh no, we're all right, we're all, we're all right for time. Probably, well, probably another 20 minutes, I don't want to, yeah, probably another 20 minutes. Uh, and let me ask you three questions. Right. In quick succession. All right. Yeah. <laughs> no pressure. So no pressure, but uh -huh. question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. Okay. Uh, on, on purpose, and and you will chuckle, possibly, <laughs> at the first question because I have plagiarised it from a man, uh, who's sitting not too far from me right now, uh, and if I, you know, and I don't want to guess your answer, but I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking I know the answer to this, but useful for the purpose of people listening to the to the podcast. What is your motivating purpose? Okay. I got the answer <laughs> instantly. Yeah. My whole purpose in life is to be connected to the divine, be heart, to be part of all that is. And I want to share it with you, to let you experience that beauty that I have, mm -hmm. to um, be that conduit that brings you into awareness, connecting, um, connect just maybe not even to people, connecting myself from uh, sky to earth. That's, that's it. Good. I remember you asked me that question in, 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 a, in a cafe. <laughs> that's why you were chuckling. You were putting the boot in the other foot. Yeah. It's a beautiful question to be asked. Yeah. I love it. Uh, funny, when you asked it to me, we were sitting in a cafe in a public space, you know, drinking coffee, having a chat. You never yeah. met me before. Never, never we met you before. Five minutes in. Five, five minutes in. Said the question. Yeah, and it was like someone taking. I was going to say a baseball bat. That's 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 <laughs> not true. That's not true. Somebody. Uh, you know, do you know when you go get a massage and, and yes. you're there 45 minutes in and, and afterwards you can hardly move? You're like uh -huh. jelly, you know? <laughs> it kind of did that to me, that question. I was like, whoa, that's a question. Uh -huh. you know, so, I, so I borrowed it and, and, uh -huh. and used it. Uh, quick question, quick answer. What is the world lacking? <clears throat> well, love. <laughs> it's just to be open to all our love. Love mm -hmm. is the most fundamental thing there is. And... Uh, you know, Jesus said it. Uh, everybody says it. Um, I think love is the most beautiful thing that you can give. Uh, it's what my parents gave me. It's also a very beautiful thing to allow yourself to receive. I think, um, okay, so if you're living in love 
and uh, combine that with receiving and openness, you then can be in a state of being, mm. which is joy. Mm. This is the product of all that. Mm -hmm. okay? But without love, you're nothing. You can do anything you want. But mm -hmm. it doesn't, if it doesn't come from a point of love, forget it. Yeah, see, the work that I've been doing on myself, with myself, about myself of late, Brian, is that idea of, of sometimes, in some places, struggling to allow myself to receive love. Right. And I now understand that that's an idea of, of worthiness and, 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 yes. and a defense Being, mechanism. Feeling innocent, uh, yep. deserving. Yep. Okay, so yep. you'll get this in the breath. There's even a somatic point in your chest between the ribs that I can touch. It's safe to receive love. I'm open to receive all the love the universe has for me. Mm -hmm. Just let it open your heart and let it flood into you. You don't want this imbalance of giving, giving. It's safe. To, it's expressing love on mm -hmm. this side. Okay, you can express love and give, maybe losing your own energy, being mm -hmm. very caring for other people, but now to receive love is caring for yourself. This is the most important, to receive love before you express love, mm -hmm. okay? To have that beautiful balance. So it's something you can, if you ever did any breathing, or even just even in your, this evening, just write it down, it's safe to receive love, mm -hmm. okay? I'm worthy to receive all the love there is mm -hmm. for me. Well, these these are the mantras that I these are the mantras that I now have for myself, and, and uh, coming to it at a point not not through breathing, but from other compassionate inquiry kind of angles and creating a space. With you, it's interesting because all the things you're saying, you're saying the same things as I like to say, but using different words in a different context to say them. You know, which which is really nice, and, and it's it's very nice for me to hear it. You know, I talk about now creating a space for emotions to be and and, and a space to sit with an emotion. Mm -hmm. and a space to acknowledge and accept an emotion and to not analyze it or intellectualize it or you know and it's lovely to hear you saying the same thing and, and that, that those kind of affirmations are things that I that I, I do for myself quick question quick answer I would love to dot 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 okay so I have the answer okay but I'm just putting it into the right words I would like to fearlessly, courageously step into the future uh, to achieve my highest purpose. Good answer. I like that. Uh, and given that this podcast is honest conversations about things that matter, sounds to me like that's one of the things that matter yeah. to you and, and, and to... to uh, well, we all have fear. Mm. Um, and to realise that fear cascades down the generations we get um you know the color of our eyes or the shape of our nose or whatever from our ancestors and we also uh, can inherit it have inherited blockages mm -hmm. that um, we have to become aware of once you bring it out into awareness you can start to deal with it much more yeah. by re realizing my great-grandfather had a fear of lack mm -hmm. Uh, that my dad inherited that. Uh, I transformed my own fear of lack into, I just feel, I have everything I need. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and I expect it all to be there for me. Mm -hmm. And as such then, Brian, that, that means that you can change the world? Absolutely. Well, every breath you know, can change mm -hmm. yourself. Everything you do, it's like a Rubik's Cube, you know? 
every little move, if, as we move, the only thing we can change is ourselves. Mm -hmm. Not to set out to change the world, to set out to the epic voyage of changing yourself mm -hmm. and so changing everything around you. You know the thing they say that um, you know, a big weather system system can be started in the Azores by the flap of a butterfly's wing. That's right, yeah. Okay, so everything that we do is critically important to the whole of the universe. Everything that we do is perfect. And, um, you know, even if it seems a wrong action, it's still perfect for what's needed at the time. Mm -hmm. um, but to try and bring yourself to that point of self-love, self-care, and... <laughs> Don't have to be po-faced about it. It's just helping everybody around mm -hmm. you, you know, changing, changing the energy field. I, I spoke to. It's interesting. I've had this conversation with with a few friends now, and different people that come from different angles. And I spoke to one friend of mine. His name's Andrew Farmer, a uh, great poet and great songwriter and singer as well. And Andrew is a guy that would be detached from religion, but enjoys the study of scripture. Right. And he was talking. I, I happened to say something to him about this idea of generational trauma and generational limiting beliefs and, and you know, experiences rolling down through generations and he was like that's really interesting you know there's a scripture a part of scripture in the bible that talks about uh god god will god will visit the sins of man for four generations now i'm paraphrasing i don't know if i've got yeah. that exactly right and he then was you know we had a lovely discussion that emotionally we, we, we now understand scientifically that 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 emotions and, and beliefs uh, and crisis and trauma are rolled down through generations. And when you view that idea of God will visit the sins of man for four generations through the lens of those emotions yeah. and feelings and energy can roll down through yeah. the generations, yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, not, they're not that different a, a perspective to take on it. Yeah. Uh, with or the idea more, of seven generations. And, well, and the Red Indians so, talk about seven generations. So you can choose to break that family karma. And that's what I mean by changing the world. Okay. Yeah. And to, uh, to love and be grateful to all your ancestors and be very aware of them, but change the energy. And it's a bit like a hamster running around and around in a wheel for generation, 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 generation. And you can break out of the cage mm -hmm. and go forward courageously and fearlessly. And that's amazing. And I think I love that. I love the And some people that I work with, sometimes I love the idea of, of getting them to a point of realizing or realization that when I say change the world, what I mean is that their ability to change the world for people who haven't even yet landed on this planet yeah. you know and that could be one generation two generation three generation they can change Absolutely. they can change the yes, experience of people yes, yes. who won't be born yes. for another 400 years okay you know exactly and, and that's changing the world to me you know that excites me okay so just to don't even have to be aware of what seed you're planting you know yeah just walk away yeah yeah, and you and you've changed the world to stop that to yeah. stop that trauma yeah. as you say to stop that family yeah. trauma rolling I think down. living in the moment mm -hmm. um, to live your life as well as you can in the situation that life throws up and what legacy you leave, you know, leave that to, to spirit. And, um, of course you can choose to very consciously go into helping people. I mean, I have had this message share, that is consciously mm -hmm. helping people. The Quakers do incredible projects, uh, you know, and helping people who are beyond help almost. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, 
who was it, Helen Keller talking about this, what, and Quakers will often talk about this, you know, what is spiritual experience if it doesn't relate to physical action? Okay. Mm -hmm. And not just to have, a, you know, a very gorgeous moment and let that be that, but they actually let it manifest somehow. Maybe it'll be intangibly, some little seed of word that you say that you don't even know has had an impact on a person. Mm -hmm. and years later, they'll come back to say, when you said, it just touched my heart. Mm -hmm. Whatever, it doesn't have to be really. You don't have to be a do-gooder. Mm -hmm. You just live your life in the present, what seems right to you at that time. You've reminded me of the book uh, by Dom Miguel Ruiz. Or Ruiz oh, yes. The Four Agreements, and the, 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 first, the first agreement being be impeccable with your word. And, and that idea that you never know what you say. And words are so powerful, Brian, as you know. Words are to, powerful. To, I've brought to, you a list of beautiful words You today. did bring me, yeah. yeah. Uh, and <laughs> words are so powerful. Be careful of your words. Guard yeah. your words. Yeah. Guard who you speak to, mm -hmm. how you speak to them. And, in, and I always say to people, <clears throat> include your internal chatter that because you listen to everything Absolutely. you say. You know, you hear you every word. You can be in your low negative energy. Yeah. Uh -huh. You know, listen, listen to your internal chatter. Be aware. And people, you know, people will argue with me that they don't have an internal voice. I think it just yeah. stop and listen. The monkey mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you'll okay, hear it. Okay, so a beautiful way to stop that. It's not transformation of breath. Something I've done for years. Say I'm going into meditation and my mind, it's been a busy day and I'm going, yeah, 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 hmm. yeah. And there's this little uh, monkey sitting on my right side going, yeah, 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 that little so and so. That's, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'll get revenge on him. <laughs> and the other voice on the other shoulder is going, calm, Brian, it's time to go into the meditation. Relax. Okay, so a beautiful way to start to still the mind before you meditate is to do the alternative nostril breathing uh, of keeping, you know, um, using your thumb and your next two fingers, put the th finger next to the thumb on your third eye, closing your nostril with your thumb and breathing in through the right nostril and closing the left nostril and breathing out through, lifting the thumb off, breathing out. Just doing this, breathe in through one nostril, out through the other, in again, same, through the same nostril, out through the other. And it's actually a way of becoming present because you're focusing on your breath and it's like a, a mindfulness exercise. And then just dive deep into the real meditation after it. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I learned that we breathing technique at a Funny again, the things that you do and see and do and experience in Seinfeld mm. uh, through a yoga class that I did in Seinfeld and I was taught that, ah, that, that yeah. breathing meditation. Yeah. It brings calmness mm. and uh, mind quietness, centering. It's a beautiful thing to do. There's a lot of ways to breathe, but um, that's one that I use. Mm. It's a regular part of my toolkit. Mm. So you brought a book, and, and I suppose just for our listeners as well, it's good to, it's good to tell them that, that you haven't had... Uh, you haven't had uh, insight or forewarning of any of the questions that I asked you, mm -hmm. uh, that you that you heard them for the first time today. And I also messaged you early this morning. You're, yes. coming, you're coming here at yes. 10 o'clock. I messaged you early this morning. Saying, Luckily, I opened my Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. It wouldn't have mattered if you hadn't. Uh, and I said, bring a book and bring a thing. Okay. You know, and, 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 I, and I, I purposely left that late. I All do right. that so that it doesn't yeah. give people too much time well, to panic or, you know, bring this and bring this. And they just uh, kind of have, you have to take one and go, okay. you know. 
and that, that kind of removes that intellectual thinking out of it and you just go f and that, that, that to me is connecting the spirit you know that's mm -hmm. just, just instant I have to bring one so I asked you to bring along a book and, and uh, a thing, and I'd love you to just tell us about the book that you so brought. So I have chosen to. to bring to you a book called The Presence Process. It's a journey into present moment awareness, and it's by a writer called Michael Brown. Mm -hmm. If you want to hear him talk about it, just go on my website. I'll give you the details later. And there's a nice little video clip of Michael Brown talking. What a good speaker he is. Mm -hmm. Michael's story, here he is in the back of the book, he's from South Africa, mm -hmm. he was in a motorbike crash, not in any way connected spiritually or religiously, just a guy, uh, and he had this uh, untreatable pain, and he developed uh, a way of coping with the pain, which was rather than to suppress it or repress it, was to stay present with the pain, the presence process. And he found that remaining present with the pain, he could integrate the pain and start to live gradually in pain-free ways in what had been a life of 24-7 absolute agonizing pain. Mm -hmm. And he developed it uh, into the mental-emotional uh, life as well because he realized that you can start to use um, the presence process by coming fully awake and alert and staying present into resolving all the hurts, wounds, traumas, incidents of life that we store somatically. That reminds me of another book, uh, The Body Keeps the Score. Mm, I know that one. Bessel van der Kock, uh, where everything that ever happens to us is held traumatically. I want to yeah. mention another local guy, Gareth Toner, who works on trauma release exercises. I'm doing beautiful exchanges with Gareth at the moment. I'm hoping to learn to be a facilitator of TRE. It's called trauma release exercises, where you start to shake out. See, so much of what we do in life is cognitive. We think mm -hmm. about it. Yeah, we're in our heads enough. In our heads, you know, they talk about cognitive behavioral therapy. I'm not knocking it in any way. Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's much used. But actually the way to integrate emotions, to resolve issues of your life, to resolve pain, is just to be present with it, mm -hmm. to feel the feeling. So when the feeling comes up of anger, it's to actually feel the physical pains. Sense that reddening of your chest, your yep. throat, your face, your heart starting to beat faster, your mm -hmm. fists clenching, your teeth starting to guard together. Mm -hmm. Uh, just to become fully aware of that and just to stay with it and breathe into it. And um, this is what Michael is doing. He's come at it from a different, totally different point of view. But we now advocate the presence process in transformational breath. It's not an easy process. It takes 10 weeks. First, you have to read the first half of the book. And the second half of the book starts in week one. And you go through it for 10 weeks to become aware of all the beautiful things that Michael Brown is drawing our attention to, to, um, you know, well, he starts you immediately on a breathing practice. He searched for years till he got the right breathing practice. He found transformational breath. He totally endorses it. So that's, 
That's your first week, is to start to get into the breath. Then he talks about identifying messages. And, um, you know, you have a recurring situation in your life. The same thing keeps popping up. Why does that always happen to me? Why I always get that shyster who comes and, okay? <laughs> that person is your very best friend. That person who really twiddles your knobs and gets you is bringing you a message mm -hmm. that I have to listen to that aspect. He's so arrogant. Mm -hmm. It's your own arrogance, mm -hmm. okay? So then you deal with the message, okay? And then you can integrate it. Um, and so it's identifying the messengers. Instead of being angry at them, saying thank you. Yeah. Once you deal with the message, okay, whatever the issue is, that situation, that person will never reappear in your life. It's mm -hmm. gone. You aren't even aware. You know, you can get angry at a person. And, and they, they don't say, even well, know. What are they going on about? I've done nothing. It's because they're, they're your messenger, that's their role in life, yeah. you know? They're your best friend, really. You can then start, you know, here, well, I needn't go through it all, but, but um, you know, integrating our childhood, our child self. Um, I'm going to put a little so link on. to that book. Uh, on put the, a link the, to it. I'm not going to go through it all now, but it's a, it's, a, it's a thing not to do once. Um, my wife, Lucy, and I have done it together twice. We're about to go into it. Lucy just said the other morning, it's time to do the presence process again. So it's, we have a bit of a break in time now. We, mm -hmm. Our lives are very busy, but I think we have a window to do the presence process together. We love to do things together. And um, so we'll go begin into the presence process again. You can do it as many times as you can and you, and you need. Mm -hmm. Another thing to do is the work, Byron Katie. Uh, to really find out your issues. If you haven't a clear view of what your issues are, you just do the work. It's four little, four little statements that you write. I'm angry, saddened, uh, and upset. And name the person. Because, and you start to write it all out. Look it up. Byron Katie, the work. Mm -hmm. I'll not explain it. Approach it innocently. You'll find a lot about yourself through the work. You can do the work in any situation, okay? It's not just a one-off use. Mm -hmm. okay. So that's the book I've brought. Thank you, and I'll sh I'm gonna share some of that, that with our, uh, underneath or with our podcast. Yeah. Yeah. And I asked you to bring a thing, and you have the most glorious, beautiful looking piece of glass-like green stuff with popcorn inside it yeah. uh, that is sitting beside you. Just hold it up and, to the light. And, and look at that. That is, that is amazing. Isn't it gorgeous? It is absolutely fantastic. Okay, so um, I want to tell you about this. Uh, look into it, Kevin, and see like a piece of the sea frozen. Mm -hmm. And all the creatures within it, the blobs. Mm -hmm. So to describe it, it's quite heavy. I'm holding it now. It's about uh, seven inches across and about five inches high. It's a lump of glass slag, and inside it, there are all these white blobs, little forms floating about in it. They do look like little It's like popcorn. crystallized sea, mm -hmm. okay? And so I brought that because you can actually see on it, you know, where it's been worn from mm -hmm. sitting and... Um, can I see it, Brian? Uh-huh. And uh, it weighs about, I would say that's two kilos or something like that. <laughs> Quite a lot, maybe more. Maybe more, three very, kilos. Very, very dense. Yeah. And um, so what is it? One of my friends <laughs> called it 
kryptonite. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. like Superman, has it? Um, Would you believe that that's the second time today that I have I have used the word kryptonite with my previous client, right. and you have just said kryptonite. And I can't remember the last time. That okay, the word so there's no was used such twice. thing as a coincidence. No. So kryptonite is an energy source, and for for you to listen to that message, mm -hmm. it's something about energy that you need mm -hmm. to look at. There are no coincidences in life. Well, I wrote I wrote a I wrote a song. The song was called Up and Smoke, and there was a line in it, and I was talking about someone close in my life that I, I'm not able to reach and help, and I wrote the line uh, like Superman with kryptonite. I did my best to put things right. And there's a scene in the Superman movies where he has kryptonite and his, his dad's very early Superman. His yeah. dad is dying of cancer thing. And he, and he says, yes. I, you know, I have all this kryptonite and all these powers and I can't save my father. Yes. And that's what that represented to me, that idea of I have all these tools and I speak to people like you. And, you know, I'm aware of, of emotions and I have tools, but I can't reach this person in my life to help them. And I feel that I have this kryptonite, mm -hmm. but okay. I can't use it and then funny you have sat down here an hour after my last client and you have mentioned the word kryptonite and how many okay. days in your life do you hear the word okay. kryptonite said twice so you listen know? to it yeah. take what it means for you mm. okay now you're holding the kryptonite in your hand and i'll tell you the story of my involvement with the kryptonite um it it has accompanied me in my life from my earliest memories it sat in the hearth in my great aunts in her house in stramillis from my earliest memories. I'd go and visit my great auntie Millie with my mum, who was also Millie. And the whole family would go and we would sit with this matriarch. And in the hearth sat the glass, lump of glass slag. I didn't know it was that. I didn't really care what it was. I was a five-year-old. I'd just been mesmerized. I'd get sucked mm -hmm. into, into the glass mm -hmm. and wonder and wonder and wonder about the whole beauty of it. And They'd all be talking all their adult, adult chat, 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 chat. And I'd be gone on my own little journey inside the glass, becoming part of it, just a little tiny boy. And um, it's been there any time my great aunt died in 1980. My uh, mother's cousin, Hazel, who's 87 now and fantastic person, she um, uh, still lives in St. Ives Gardens in the house. And... Um, the kryptonite sitting in the hearth. I went to see Hazel a couple of years ago. It was a little journey. Um, my ancestors kept coming to me in the breathing sessions and looking at me and I thought, oh, I better put a name to these faces and uh, who have I got left to tell me? And there's Hazel. And she, we spent two evenings talking. She took me from her memory through everybody in the family on my mother's side. Uh, Martin uh, was my grandfather's name, Ben Martin. Uh, she took me through all his siblings, his parents, his relations. She got me back to 1860. And I've written it all down and I have little essays in each person as she told me about them. You know, it's a beautiful thing too. And uh, now I've gone in deeper um, uh, to research my family and I've chosen to live in Sainfield in the Drumlands. I'd somehow feel magically attracted to this part of East Down, to Strangford Lock, to the rolling Drumlands of our beautiful, mm -hmm. gentle mm -hmm. landscape. And uh, where did my uh, researches take me? That my own people were living in the townland of Ballywollen, which is about 10 minutes from where we're sitting. 
the first birth I got registered was 1650, living at in Castle Hill, Killyleigh. I suspect there was a plantation encampment mm -hmm. uh, where the castle now is. There was a tower house before the Lanyon, you know, sort of Scottish baronial style castle. It's so beautiful now. Mm -hmm. but, um, the first birth was 1650. By 1671, the next recorded birth, they were living on the farm in Ballywillan, which is on the road between Killyleigh and Crossgar. And um, they stayed there every generation, all Presbyterian, 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 down the generations, marrying at 19 or 20, uh, some of them living really long lives. I found the 1801 agricultural census in the public record office. So I got their annual rental for their farm, 16 pounds. This was pre-famine, remember, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, 1801. Mm -hmm. They were living like so many other little families. Um, they, um, the agricultural census showed that they had one cow, they had five bushels of oats a year, five bushels of oats straw, they had 50 bushels of potatoes, so they were living on potatoes. Mm -hmm. They probably had a pig, pigs weren't listed, and they would have had chickens. Mm -hmm. So they'd have had poultry, eggs, bacon, milk, butter that they'd have made themselves, maybe cheeses, uh, but principally potatoes. And they were living down the generations. I found in the 1911 census, my family, after the famine, most of my family, they moved into Belfast because the agricultural system had proven it didn't work to support them. Mm -hmm. They moved and and all my grandfather and all his brothers, apart from one, were welders. But I saw one name in the 1911 census, still in the little farm in Ballywillan, Robert Martin, blacksmith. And so I think my people were supplementing, they were farming and blacksmithing. Okay? Mm -hmm. It's beautiful to have that lovely connection. But anyway, in the course of, I digress to tell you all that, it's this lovely connection down the generations that I feel very much. And it's lovely to be able to put a place and to know I've been attracted to living 10 minutes from where they were. Mm -hmm. um, to know, broadly speaking, where the farm was. To see the blacksmith's gates, maybe they made them. Because mm -hmm. okay? we've got all these wonderful old gates scattered around our townlands. And um, so the kryptonite was sitting in the hearth through all of this. And Hazel's 87, and, um, you know, uh, I said, I'm not so young either, I, I said to Hazel, if I outlive you, Hazel, will you leave me the beautiful green crystal? And um, so um, she told me the story of it, how it came into her family. It came into her family in the 1890s. Her grandfather, uh, surname was Birch, uh, with a U, not like the birch tree, mm -hmm. Birch. And you maybe heard of the artist Lawson, Birch and so on. Hazel was, uh, um, well, she was a Martin too, but her mother was a Birch. And uh, they, uh, Mr. Birch, my relative, uh, long ago in the 1800s, he had a beautiful grocery shop in Donegal Pass. Donegal Pass was really elegant. 
you know, upmarket part of town. Mm -hmm. He had uh, the shop and then a few doors down, he had one of those beautiful Georgian terrace houses. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Donegal Pass. Mm -hmm. Lovely, elegant yeah, yeah. house that they <coughs> lived in. I have the numbers, the addresses and all that from Hazel. And so um, it was a good business and, uh, you know, very good middle class clientele. Belfast was prospering. From the 1860s to 1910, Belfast was where it was at. It had the biggest rope works, the biggest shipyard, you know, mm -hmm. linen. Northern Ireland was flying economically. And so it was almost, I don't want to over-egg it, you know, but a good grocery shop. Mm -hmm. And a man came in, a tramp. We don't talk about tramps much these days, but... It's um, an old-fashioned word, isn't it? It's an old-fashioned word, but a tramp <laughs> came in. That's the word Hazel yeah. used for me. And uh, the tramp asked for very small quantities of everything. He asked for a quarter of bacon, uh, which was sliced uh, and wrapped up beautifully in the greaseproof paper and the little brown paper parcel. He asked for two eggs, for uh, a little bit of bread, for a quarter of tea. Everything was wrapped up beautifully. And when it was presented to him, all these lovely little packages, he said, I've no money. And feeling a sort of emotion rising. It was a beautiful act. All this treating this man who obviously was a down and out. Giving him everything beautifully. And uh, they said, okay, it's no problem. Just take it. It's yours. It's a gift. And he rummaged in his sack, whatever that was like. I don't know what it was like. I can only imagine. He says, but I do have this. Yes. Which personifies to me utter beauty. The ability to go inside it, to be connected to the totality of everything. And how it came into our family. Out of an act of giving, of beauty, of generosity. That's a great word in life, generosity. Mm. Okay, and it came back in bucket loads. He might have given them a shilling, which should have gone in the tail and been forgotten. But he gave us a priceless treasure. One that you're holding now, and I can see the power it is putting into you, even as you're sitting there. Sorry to get emotional. Never apologize for getting emotional. It's a beautiful, yeah. beautiful gift to my family. Okay, so now I know the history of it. I'm, of course, I'm an inquiring mind. I'm an archivist yeah. by trade or have been. I might have moved on, but um, I knew it was glass slag. I wondered where he'd got it. 
and I knew the person to ask. As soon as, so how it came was actually I asked Hazel to leave it to me in her will as long as uh, my cousin Ivan, her brother, didn't mind if he would agree to it. So um, uh, when Lucy and I got married, Hazel phoned. She said, I'd like you to come around, Brian. I have something to give you. And I knew what it was mm -hmm. immediately. And um, so I got it. The next day, I was walking up the street. There are no coincidences in life. I knew the very man who would know what it was. It's our neighbour. He's only a few doors up from where we're sitting. Peter Francis, who has the antique shop. Mm -hmm. Peter is an absolute expert on Irish glass. There's nobody in the world knows as much about it as Peter. Okay? So I said to Peter, I've been given a big lump of glass slag and it has white inclusions. It's green, it has white inclusions. He said, I said, I'll bring it up to you. He says, you don't need to, Brian. I know what that is. He knew instantly, but I knew Peter would know. Mm. He said that came from a glassworks that uh, was in Stra it was called Strand Millis Glassworks. Well, where did Hazel live in Strand Millis? Where mm -hmm. was the shop Donegal Pass? Mm -hmm. Not even a mile from. The glassworks was in the edge of the Botanic Gardens, very close to the Lyric Theatre. It okay. had a chimney and so on. Yep. Um, what happened was they were using sand. Sand uh, brought to a high heat, vitrifies and makes glass. And there was a mineral in it. He did tell me the name. I wish I'd written it down. I could always go up and ask him, but it doesn't really matter. No. The mineral was making the impurity, which are these beautiful white inclusions. So instead of being clear, they required their glass to be clear, but it was having the inclusions. And they went bankrupt because they couldn't, they didn't know what was the cause of it. And they kept using the same sand. And, uh, but um, our tramp had seen the beauty in it and picked it up and carried it. See how heavy it is? Yeah, he's carried that around. He's carried that around. Yeah. I mean, let us even bring it up to you today. I, kept, yeah. I had to change arms. And he chose, of all the things a tramp has to carry, to add a heavy load, a heavy load. And uh, it must have had been charged with meaning. He gave away a priceless gift to him for his two slices of bacon, his quarter of tea. And we have it today. And I feel proud of my family. That's why I got emotional. Mm -hmm. It was a beautiful action in my family. Beautiful actions cascade down the, the generations, just like fear or mm -hmm. anger mm -hmm. or grief does. Um, and that, that beautiful thing has come to me. Of all the members of my family, it has come to me. And I cherish it. It's full of meaning. I've been connected to it somehow. My first memory is five, but I must have had it before that, mm -hmm. of looking at it, being mesmerized by it. And so that's why I brought the and that's a that's a great story, and Brian. I think that's a, I think that's a great place to wrap to wrap up uh, mm -hmm. a great end. And you know, you, a lot of words you, you used, and, and and one you used most recently there was, was the idea of, of generosity. Mm. Uh, and you say that generosity is a is a beautiful thing to have. Or the whole, oh, or the, quality. Game, or the quality. quality, yeah, the quality. Yeah, okay, yeah. it's a way of being, and something that I haven't always been in my life. And mm -hmm. I used to envy it. My late brother, who was a wonderful person, uh, he had the most generous heart. You know, people would be attracted to my brother mm -hmm. to ask him, "Can I have your coat?" He'd mm -hmm. give it. Mm -hmm. It's just like that. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember 
wishing I was like my brother, wishing, wishing I was generous. And I have consciously worked on it. But now I realize what I said to you earlier, the source of all energy uh, is free. It's free yeah. And give it. Uh, the more you give away, the more it will come back to you. It'll come back to you in bucket loads, okay? Well, you have been extremely generous in coming here and, and uh, sharing your story. And, and uh, to me, I, I can't wait to listen back to this conversation uh, and, and uh, to hear you talking again about, you know, things that matter. Things that <laughs> you know, matter. Things that matter. Okay. And that's, that's what the name of the okay. podcast is, you know, honest conversations about okay. things that matter. Okay. Uh, things that matter. Some images just come into my head. I just said that. Okay, so you have the, um, the daily challenges of life, okay? But I had this vision in the breathing that we have always lived, that we came into being with the Big Bang, into consciousness. We have a really long chronology. I've chosen in my life to you know, work with a long chronology. What seems like a long chronology? 10,000 years to a human of, say, say um, <coughs> you know, the three score and 10 is the thing which I'm just entering. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's that's the yardstick, you know, for us. But we're much bigger than that. It's to truly realize how massive we are. Our longevity, always alive. You know, people will say you have eternal life, you die. Uh, okay, but that eternal life doesn't go on into the future. It's always there. It's infinite. We've been there since the bang. We'll, we're always there trying to get purer and purer and purer. Currently, you're living your life as Kevin. I'm living my life as Brian. Um, and, uh, you know, just to take that opportunity to, this image that came into my head was, why worry about ripples in a mill pond? That is the everyday incident of bills to pay mm -hmm. or challenges to face in your business. When you live in an ocean of time, okay, see it all in that oceanic, infinite, massive perspective when you're challenged to realize, gently unfold yourself to your complete majesty, uh, your enormity. And that's what I think people really fear most, to opening themselves up to who they really are. And how great they really are. How great they are. Mm. Well, Bran, again, Thank you uh, for your generosity, for your words of wisdom, for your insights, for your uh, outlooks, uh, for your time, uh, for your emotion, energy, passion, uh, calmness, stillness. Uh, but, you know, I, I almost seem to have a, 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 an oxymoronic idea of this, this idea of stillness and buzzing energy at the, <laughs> at the same time, you know, and to be, a, to be a vessel for both, which kind of seems, well, can you do that? Well, I can honestly say that yes, you can, because you just have. Uh, <laughs> so you've sat there as, a, as, a, as a, 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 an, an ocean of time, you know, you've sat there as an ocean of time of stillness and, and infinity and, you know, like I say, calmness and, and serenity but also as a buzz of, of energy, you know, so you have yeah. absolutely done both at oh, exactly yes. the same time. Yes, you can be in that um, long chronology, but the important thing is to be in the present moment. In the present moment, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Kevin. That's been wonderful, Brian. <laughs>